0: Welcome to Season 3, Episode 27 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Max Lawton. Max is a writer and translator, and he joins me from his home in LA. Welcome back to the show, Max.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's um, so nice to speak to you again, because I realize we haven't spoken since late 2021. That time you were living in New York. Uh, now you're living on the West Coast. You want to give us a little bit of an uh, update about what you're doing and what you're doing over there in California?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, my work situation hasn't changed at all, because um, I guess that's the bad part about remote remote work in a relationship is you don't have any say in where you live. <laughs> uh, mostly kidding. Um, But uh, Soroka and I are actually doing some screen screenplay work as well. And yeah. we're um writing some treatments, maybe going to write some full-on screenplays. A few studios are interested, a few producers are interested. So my own work is the same plus a little bit of extra Hollywood stuff. Uh,
0: okay.
1: But yeah, it's a, it's a big adjustment. Got to read a lot of James Elroy to live here.
0: I'm sure, yeah. And your wife is working within the Hollywood kind of industry?
1: Yes, she's a music video director.
0: Awesome. That's so cool. Very cool. All right. I'll ask you about all your projects uh, afterwards, but before we talk about that stuff, we're here today to talk about the release of the Catalan writer Miguel de Polol's Garden of Seven Twilights. It's just come out from Dalkey Archive. It's almost a thousand pages. It's a monster it's still in the mail for me. Before we start in the book, do you want to tell us a bit more about Palol and how you became aware of him?
1: Yeah. Um, so I got I became aware of Pulse, uh really only through Andre because I don't speak Catalan, so I didn't have any access to his work otherwise. Um, and it's only really starting to be translated to – it was translated into Spanish a bit, but he's not – he's a weird – famous not famous writer in a sense like he's very well known but also not well known um and I think part of that has to do with the difficulty of his books or the oddity of of them but I became aware of it through Andre and said you know oh I want to read this like like everything else and then um as I've become more and more involved with Will Evans and Darkie with Will Evans and Dalkey Archive I um I uh got involved with the project of trying to think of how we can do all of Paulo's work in a way that makes sense in a way that contextualizes him um properly so that he isn't so that he's read properly you know and that's something I thought about a lot with the Sorokin stuff we talked about last time on the, I was on the show and I think um you know when Will and I, I I'm probably translating the one book Paulo wrote in Spanish uh Butes or however the hell you say the constellation I always it's hard to say in English because we don't have umlauts. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds a little bit like a ridiculous affectation, but um, so I'll probably be translating that one and then for the other ones that Will does, I'm on, on board as a consultant, whatever. And just, um, I think the big thing is that Paulo is sort of like a mix. I think the most, the best analog for him in English is probably like uh, Samuel Delaney, but with a sort of Umberto Eco-esque uh, obsession with the cryptic so like Foucault's pendulum mm. the sort of puzzles you get in that book if you were to add those to a Samuel Delaney book it's kind of what Paulo is I would say.
0: Wow okay he sounds like such a fascinating character but what do you know about the guy personally?
1: Um, well we've uh, exchanged a few notes um, I think he's a very so to, I think to understand him I've seen some weird blurbs on the internet uh, comparing him to like Central European fiction of the pre-World War II era. So like difficult novels of consciousness, like um The Man Without Qualities, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Terrible comparison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they really, really just um will make you not understand him at all if you if you if you read him with that in mind. Um he is a sort of maximalist, a graphomaniac. He is an architect by trade, he's obsessed with puzzles, he is obsessed with uh, like sex, <laughs> but he writes about it in a very specifically Sadian mode. Um, and uh, he's a very playful writer. I think um, there are very different barriers to entry for different people. So for me, like the transgression and the storytelling brings me in. Sometimes the puzzles can be a little more challenging because I don't think, I, for me, literature can be cryptic, but then concrete puzzles are not something I usually associate with books I love, but he does them very well, so it works. Um, but there's a heavy puzzle element in, in some of his works. Um, like in Andre's review of Igor Neble, which is the book that Paul wrote after the garden, uh, he said, you know, Andre compares the labyrinth that the protagonist has to get through to the labyrinth of the book itself. And says that I like beware reader. I doubt you're going to get out or something, <laughs> but that's a good metaphor for all of Powell's work. You're probably not going to find your way out or it will take some work. That's part of the reason why in collaboration with Dalkey Archive, what I kind of want to do. And I'm not announcing this in any official capacity cause I'm not technically employed by Dalkey or anything. It's just I'm a friend to the organization. Uh, and I, I think a good idea would be to have like a sort of website where people could collaborate on understanding Paulo, like sort of a forum or something, but formatted in a cool way with some, uh, I don't know, wingdings, gadgets, whatever. <laughs> and people could kind of write their theories about the books and they all interconnect. So all of his books interconnect in various ways. Some, um, someone on Twitter, when they heard that I was going on the show, sent me a diagram that they'd made. Be honest, I hadn't read uh like half of the books, so I didn't because I don't already kettle on again. So I was <laughs> it was very cryptic to me, but um uh it would be cool if there was a community of people doing that. And I think it should appeal to I, I think you know it would be cool if a sci-fi magazine, or well, not even a sci-fi mag, if a lit mag were like world's most difficult science fiction writer. That's the sort of framing we need, is that he's like a difficult, he takes some inspiration from Central European avant-garde or whatever. Probably not even that, just all on guard fiction in general takes some inspiration from in order to make sort of like black diamond science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. So like Gene Wolfe would be another analog, but I think Gene Wolfe can't write him, can't write his way out of a paper bag. So yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it follows better.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, we'll move on to this book itself. It came out in 1989. It's his debut novel um he had a bit of a career in poetry before that as far as i know do you want to tell us a bit about that structure of the book and that idea of the puzzles and a little bit about the plot in general
1: yeah so there's an um the, the first line is funny because it's uh, i already saw people reposting and i think there was some controversy or question about it because it's a bit cryptic in the original where it says like the first nuclear the first atomic alarm and barcelona's history if you probably saw that so it's mm-hmm. like this atomic alarm and everyone flees barcelona the cryptic thing there is that i'm not sure if nukes are meant to fall on barcelona or not it seems from what happens later in the book that they don't but um one would i don't think atomic alarms go off or nuclear strike alerts go off unless the strike is imminent so that's a bit of a mystery and i think the mm-hmm. uh galleys say one thing and then the finished version, version says another. I think in the galleys, they thought it was a strike. Yes. In the finished version, it becomes a um, nuclear oh, strike wow. alert right? or something. Because atomic alarm in American English is like an atomic alarm clock. But anyways, mm-hmm. um, so was, that can't be. But a bit of a confusion. But um, <laughs> beyond that, it's uh, all these people flee the city, go to a luxurious estate, and they start telling stories. And a lot of these stories are quite body uh, obscene. They gather every night. They also like are all kind of fucking each other. It's like Love Island. <laughs> uh, or whatever. Um and um, it develops in that very gradually you realize that the stories are interconnected and are telling a single story of like um international finance conspiracy, magic, not exactly magic, but um sci-fi magic, let's say. So it's <laughs> things so incomprehensible as to seem magical. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the stories proceed on different levels that are indicated in numbers on the in the column alongside the text so you'll have like the first order story i forget exactly how it works um but so you've got like the basic story of the people at the house telling the stories and then you'll have a level one story i think yeah i think level zero is the people at the house then level one is um the stories they're telling then level two would be the stories that the people in the first level stories are telling then Mm -hmm. level three would be the stories that the people in the second level stories are telling. And mm. Palol initially, he said in th- an interview with Andre, wanted that to expand out to like 64 levels. Word. But um, but I think he decided that was a bad idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so there's a the great note from the editor uh, at the beginning of the book just to tell us how that all works, which is really interesting because it kind of makes it, a, I guess, a bit of a frame narrative, or a Russian doll kind of narrative. But um, from the blurb, like all of these things kind of tie together in some way at the end, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. Um, it, very hard to explain, but mm. and it's also a spoiler, but yes, they do. Okay. And what gradually you get is that at first you j- it just seems like a the Cameron thing where nothing mm. is connected. And then you realize that everything's connected and that everything keeps getting called back to and shifting like necrophilia narratives become like sex with hologram narratives in a, okay. in a way that recontextual, I mean, it's hard to, it's, it's very strange and it's, it would be, it would take literal hours to explain how it all comes together. Mm. Cause it's also 888 pretty long pages. Yeah. I think it's like 400,000 words or something. Okay. Maybe, That's maybe huge. 350. So it's it's quite long. Mm. Um, but it does come together in a very satisfying way and it doesn't seem like it's going to. Mm -hmm. um and uh yeah i think that's paulo's one of his obsessions in his books is people who are part of a scheme that don't realize they're part of a scheme Mm -hmm. which just to say that like um so they're just telling these stories they're shooting the shit they're in a very the funny the the weird part is that the norm the protagonist is meant to be like an ordinary joe who then is connected to these people in a way he doesn't predict right And they're all very, very rich and Mm. very, very well connected. And so they're all sort of telling, it's sort of works, it's a little bit like a kind of White Lotus thing as well, if you know what I mean, where it's uh, rich people misbehaving in a sort of very well-appointed surrounding that then takes a super sci-fi turn, I guess. Mm.
0: Okay. It sounds a little bit like, just in terms of structure, um, the combinations by Louis Armand, I have not read that. Okay. It's definitely so, like that book is like set up on kind of a, a basically chessboard grid structure almost, but it's got mm. that kind of feel to it where, you know, you don't know things are coming together until they actually do. But yeah, mm. might be, might be a similar kind of book, but yeah, I don't know. Find yeah. yeah. So.
1: I, I give it neither of us can say we're <laughs> yeah. i on mutually incomprehensible.
0: <laughs> That's right. Language. Exactly. One of the things you mentioned in your recent lecture on Schattenfrau was the influence that Andre has um over at the untranslated on getting this work finally out in english i wanted to know like why do you think this book took so long to come out because it's well like 30 something years now
1: yeah i mean i think there are a few reasons um like think of philip k dick or philip k dick's a really good analog his books are very bite-sized right you can read one in a day pretty mm-hmm. easily and his prose is also very transparent Sometimes it's not good, but um in something like Valis, which I think is probably his best book, it's actually good prose and it's written to be it's a, it's a lot like a Paul book, but Paul's never thinking about mystical
2: whatever mm. uh,
1: visions. Um but Paul is very, very, very long. He's stylistically sometimes quite impenetrable, specifically when he goes down he'll go down the weeds in a in, in a quite rigorous way so we're talking about these puzzles and it'll be sort of like um, oh well of course we need the sixth power to the fourth of this and then it'll be like pages and pages of sort of like technical descriptions of problems or, or geometry issues or mm-hmm. uh and that's that's probably a little bit impenetrable there's some very graphic sex um it's just a i think it'd be a Strange book to commission without having a lot of faith in it, um, because I also think Paulo has a complicated reputation as a stylist, um, because a lot of people think he's a graphomaniac who doesn't write well. That's his reputation in uh, Catalonia. I don't think that's fair, but I think that is sort of people think of him as being like um, not serious in a certain kind of way, maybe, or 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 yeah. Um, a bit like Philip K. Dick, I guess, actually, mm-hmm. uh, but I think he's a very good stylist. Uh, this book is—he's young. He wrote it when he was probably twenty-five, wow. I think. Um, and it's a thousand pages. I mean, it's 888 pages, but you know, it's effectively a thousand pages, so it's a—it's mm-hmm. a doorstopper. And um, I think he was fine, like searching for his voice in a certain kind of way. So this is really a first novel, so it should be read as a as a first novel. It's, I mean, I guess I would even say, like, think of Broom of the System, right? Hmm. Compared to that's Infinite Jest. Yeah. And I think that's what Andre has told me is the difference between this and Troy Accord, which I have not read because only in Catalan. But I have read Butes, and Butes is uh, very, very good. And you can see the same tendencies, but it's like he he does push them much harder. His prose becomes much more stylized in an interesting way, becomes much more impenetrable actually. Mm -hmm. Um, So the tendencies that you see here are just pushed out to the end of the degree. And I actually think probably the reason he has a reputation for being not that good of a stylist is because of this book, which is he wrote when he was young. So it's like, you sometimes see the seams a little bit. Um, and, and I think people don't really know his subsequent books at all. But this book won a lot of prizes when it came out, was translated into Spanish. So it's relatively well known, but it's a much different follow than in the later books.
0: Okay. Yeah. In terms of how he's saying... I've kind of got mixed pictures about how he's seen overseas and I think with Catalan writers in general, because there is, I guess, this much smaller reading base for people writing in Catalan in particular. What's his reputation like in, I guess, Europe and places like that?
1: Um, the reputa- I, I don't think people really know him outside mm-hmm. of Spain. Yeah, um, I think he's just been translated a little bit into French. They're starting to translate him into French. Editions Zumba, I think. Um, and... I don't think he's really been read that much. So I think he has a reputation for being a, an eccentric writer who people are interested in getting into, like mm-hmm. in English, you know, like in America. But I don't think his reputation mm, precedes him in a sense. Yeah, It'll be interesting in 10 years to see where he's at. I think it, a lot depends on the initial reception of these books in English.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so after this book has hopefully had some really uh, nice praise and a good reception and sells well, what are we expecting to see in English next?
1: So next is the Troia Court, which okay. um, Doug, Doug Subtle is translating. Okay, great. Um Who's in charge of Umdistampa. Stampa. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is, according to Andre, the masterpiece. Okay. That's by far, far and away the best one, he says. It's very long. I think it's about 1.5 times as long as the garden. Yeah. Um, and the... Yeah, so that that's going to be a very good sort of um, that's already signed up and everything's sort of sealed like, yeah, everything's ready for that. It's all stitched up, as they say. Amazing. Um, so I think that's going to be a very cool opportunity for people to read something that is meant to be just a total masterpiece that is very unread in the sense that only exists in Catalan, not even in Spanish yeah um it's also being translated into french now so i think he might really have a moment but um the big thing i would say with regard to that is that i think the garden is a good opportunity to like for people to dip their toes because Mm -hmm. i think all the diff i think actually as far as i understand it the difficulty gets much higher but also the skill um increases more than commensurately which is to say yeah. he gets more skilled than is necessary for the novel um for the novel's increased complexity so wow. it just had to be this awesome insane book
0: okay. how are they um, going to fit like a book that's that much bigger than this one are they going to put it out in two volumes you think like
1: I think we're going to do I think probably we're going to do multiple volumes that's one of the things I'm working with Dalkey on is that um where uh I, I have this cool idea that we're going to see if it comes through of doing kind of like old-fashioned sci-fi mm-hmm. release volumes to kind okay. of tip people off that this is uh, the Delaney or Philip K. Dick mode and not uh, not whatever uh, Central European fiction of the middle of the century. Yeah. Which, so, I mean, let me see if I can actually find this blurb. It's so wrong. It's not that... It, it just it confuses people because if you're going into this looking for the man without qualities, you're not yeah. gonna you're, you're not gonna, gonna understand it. it. Yeah, you're not gonna find it, you're not gonna get it. Yeah. So I think the important thing is that it gets read in the right way. And I think Trey Accord is gonna be split into maybe even five volumes potentially. Mm. Wow. and released staggered because um uh yeah, I think that's not a bad way to do it.
0: Okay. Amazing. Wow, that'll be a really cool project to see when it comes out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to ask you about some of your other projects uh, that are on the go. Before I do that, I also want to ask you, this is a question that you addressed um, during your shut and fro lecture, but for people who didn't see it, one of the things you brought up was how we as readers support these things and make sure that they're not the kind of things, like I know the feedback from a book like Antagony was that the expense to print it and to produce it. Is probably something the translate the the company probably won't rush back to do. Um, but how do we make sure that we keep seeing this stuff out in print?
1: Uh, I think the thing would be just to if you're interested in projects like this in general, even if you don't necessarily feel like you resonate with this particular project fully, you should probably just get it and give it a try, <laughs> because it's not like too many enormous books. Uh, enormous weirdo books come out per year in English, right? They're probably like five or six. So if you if you wanna see them out, especially if it comes from a smaller house, um, you should just probably buy it, Yeah, I think. And um, yeah, beyond that, um, you could, if you like it, you should talk about it. You should get other people to read it. Word of mouth is very important because especially if the book doesn't have an initial first, like the kindly ones in English really was dead on arrival Mm -hmm. when people first read it because it got such terrible reviews. But then it kind of had a second life. Um, And I think that's a possibility where people kind of like, even if the book doesn't have a sort of first, um, a fanfare around it when it first comes out, that there's a a sort of steady buzz that then gives it this cult following. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the point is, if you like something, don't keep it to yourself, get it, share it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks. All right, let's talk about some of your other projects because we all know that you have heaps of stuff on the go, um, even with yeah. these dorm projects now, which sounds insane. Um, do you want to give us a little summary of some of the things you're working on at the moment and what is coming out this year?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, this year is actually a quiet year because of printing printing delays. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that's coming out is just the Jonathan Littell nonfiction book, The Damp and the Dry with OR yeah. Books. Mm-hmm. um very excited about that one it's really a necessary companion to the kindly ones for anyone who likes the kindly kindly ones it's sort of an answer key to that book in a certain way mm-hmm. but beyond that it's also just a very good uh text unto itself um i think it's brilliantly written sort of stands alongside and holds its own uh, among the really heavy hitter french theorists so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a cool book um of course of course that's the or for um for in years an old story which I'm uh, having, which I've started, but it's not clear what the timeline is for that one. Jonathan's yeah. second novel. Okay. Uh, but then next year there's a lot. So, um, in January, February, and March we have three Sorokin books coming out. Wow. His most famous novel, his best novel, in my opinion, Blue Lord, is coming out, which um is really just uh, a masterpiece. And I think mm-hmm. it's going to have an enormous reaction. Uh, yeah. Alongside that, Will Self actually introduced um, both volumes of short stories that are coming out with Dalkey and-, and YRB. Wow. So that's, that's cool. He's like a Virgil to the Dante of those uh, descending into the hell of Sorokin's world. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's going to be a really explosive round of Sorokin because I think, Telluria, and it's, I love. Therefore, hearts is really um, intense, but Telluria is sort of a warm up in the sense that it's uh, gentler, less extreme, yeah, a bit more approachable. Blue Lard is really going to be the full Monty. Mm. Sorokin, I've been promising it's here. This is it, and, mm. and and the short stories as well. I think um, I always say my favorite four things by Sorokin are uh, therefore hearts, Blue Lard, Doctor Garin, his new book because I think it's his best. Rep- the best representation of his sweeter later idiom yeah. but then also if you had a complete volume of the short stories that would be number four so okay. um yeah there's a there's gonna be i think a lot of attention on that and um very excited for that
2: nice okay
1: but then of course there's a lot of stuff that's not really defined in terms of the term that we're still working hard on i mean for one thing they're like all the stroke and books if we don't didn't necessarily go over because i think People kind of know more are getting signed up, more like two got si- are being signed up this month with Dalkey and NYRB, wow. uh, which is cool. So it's now, now 10, 10 books will be, pro- it'll probably end up being like 12 or 13 total. Um, there's so that's very cool that there's still interest. And in, I think yeah. the reaction was such that people want to read more. Um, but then beyond that, um, there are a lot of big projects I've attached myself to that are uh, just sort of in a state of not flux but um, development, let's say. Yeah. So Schadenfroh is the biggest one where I'm working on that with a great editor, Matthias Friedrich. Yeah. Um, and and uh, we are really just going full steam ahead because we had a sample. I think you read the sample, right? Yeah, I read the
0: sample. It's great.
1: Thank you. Yeah, but it also doesn't really show where the book goes. And as a mm. publisher, you read that sample and you go, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, so we're kind of doing a very, very large chunk of the book for people to get an actual idea of what's in it um, more properly. Because I think that the sample was confusing. Uh, right. The book is confusing, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. good for... There are like some specific scenes or moments that I think are a bit more iconic or give a better idea of the book's general drift. Mm-hmm. Like when he goes into the tapestry um, and, and goes back in time. Yeah, or the watching the execution video on the train, or mm-hmm. um, um, this big banquet dinner where his father's covering everyone's food with his work papers and won't let anyone eat. So I want, I want those to be accessible, and I want the general drift of the whole thing to be accessible. So we're probably going to have about half of the book done, not done done, mm-hmm. but readable done uh, yeah. by the end of the summer.
0: Okay. And so with that, then, do... Do you put that out to publishers and see if they're interested?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are, we've gotten offers kind of, mm-hmm. and I think um, there is one publisher who will probably put it out if we don't find anyone else for it, who, I I mean, who's just kind of on standby and wants it in a general kind of way, but isn't yeah. like chomping at the bit. Um, but so that is the main focus. Then a huge publisher actually quite surprisingly is interested in antonio moresco's songs of chaos okay i did a big sample of with francesco pacifico who's a writer and a translator of anglophone literature into italian and he's editing me um and i think we might knock on wood that's me knocking on wood um that might actually come through with a really big publisher which would be crazy um then Ralph Hubble and I are working hard to translate Ozatai, the whatever Turkish James Turkish Joyce yeah uh, it, he has two great novels and um that's a very complicated situation but we've now been blessed by Orhan Pamuk who we got who we did a reading with and we talked to, we emailed with and he's um, a fan of our project and behind our project Merve Emre is a fan of our project and behind our project mm-hmm. so we that is seeming like it's going to come to resolution soon okay. uh yeah and then also yeah. oh, there are there a few others but the main it, i'm probably doing a saline not uh re-translating an older saline yeah but i don't want to jinx it so i'm just gonna leave it at that <laughs> uh no de- details until there for sure you can, maybe by the time this episode comes out i'll post on twitter cool. um yeah so there's an awful lot of stuff a lot of awful lot of irons in the fire but i think the shot and flow is the one that i really 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 am excited about right now because Mm -hmm. i think i just fell in love with that book in such a deep way especially after initially kind of thinking the thing about i said this in my lecture but with andre there's a way in which initially we kind of sometimes think it can't be that good this Mm -hmm. guy is just making it up like Mm -hmm. uh you know he's just found something that no one knows and it's a form of getting attention to overstate its quality but it's not true Schadenfro is really, like, one of the best books I've ever read. It's one of my 10, 15 favorite novels, I think. And uh-huh. um, and it's really hard at first. And I think actually the first – here's the other thing that screws up the samples. The first 100 pages are harder than what and comes rest. after. Yeah. yeah. So it's sort of like a gauntlet he throws to the reader. Like, think you can read my book? Well, mm-hmm. let's see. Boom. And um, – but I think he's also a very sweet guy. We've been in touch um, and I think I'm going to hang out with him a bit this summer, which will be fun. Awesome. Um, and yeah, yeah, so I'm really excited about shot and fall. I'm also excited about Moresco, but I'm not going to do a big sample of that because he, he works better in sample form. I'll yeah. send you my samples him if you're curious to read, That'd but they're great. just much yeah. more self-contained. And um, I think I'm less, I think he's going to be an easier sell. Yeah. But Schattenfrau is something I kind of think like, first of all, Lenz is a bit less established as a writer than Moresco. Moresco is really famous in Italy. Yeah, Lenz is not. Lenz is well-known in a certain way, but he's not really famous. Um, Schattenfrau has the potential to be way more well-known in English than it is in German, which would be kind of mm. funny. Yeah. But then I'll probably, uh, uh, you know, then people will once again probably read it in German if it gets a degree of attention. Mm. But I, I think it's better than Solenoid. I think it's like I think it's probably the best book Andre has discovered, maybe. Okay. I, uh I I actually th- I actually think I do think that. I'm just trying to check my own. <laughs> yes, yes, I think that. I really do think <laughs> that. Because <laughs> he didn't write about blue lard. Blue lard is uh, for me. It's sort of like I get I get the same feeling working on shot and fall that I got early days working on blue lard when I was just a kid. <laughs> um, you know, like seven years ago. Wow. Uh, just finishing college that's I think Chattenfroix is sort of uh, a book that really changed people's lives um, mm-hmm. and, and it's uh, it's awesome so I that's why I'm doing such a huge chunk of it for for free <laughs> oh cool. uh, yeah
0: well I hope it I hope it sees a lot of day very very soon I know obviously it's going to take a while but yeah your sample is I fantastic mean, and I can't wait to read more
1: Thank you. I'll send you the, the 500 page chunk when it's, when it's done. And I think it it will. It, I think it's just so good. I think it's the best German novel for a long time. I'm trying to think what, what could compare. I haven't, I haven't read bottom stream. I, I have it in German and English, but I haven't read it Yeah. because it's, I, I think I probably like it more though. Cause I know how Schmidt writes and it's sort of, it's very cool, but it's like very late miles records where you're like, okay, I do like the idea of this, but I actually would rather listen to bitches brew or yeah. uh You know, it's one of the one, one of the middle periods, I tend to think middle period works are the best. When someone goes really crazy, you want to catch them right before they go off the ledge when they're like, (laughs) the tendencies are there, but there's some semblance of order. And then once they go off the ledge, it's like, I like that you went off the ledge, but Ooh, this is kind of hard to listen to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. Um, I got to ask you your schedule, all the stuff you do, Mm -hmm. do you still get time to do your own writing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, well, I've had a few short stories come out. I had my print debut last month in LARB with a short story about L.A. Wow. Um, I've had a few online. I've got one coming out next week called You Want to Be an Angel? That's about uh, Stalin's wife's suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of. I've got uh, one coming out after that called British Broadcasting about a guy who wants to make a movie about a BBC star having a nervous breakdown, but he really gets more obsessed with recreating the specific textures of BBC sitcoms in mm-hmm. the 70s. And so mm-hmm. so sort of this weird obsession. Uh, and then maybe I've got a couple coming out at bigger periodicals later this year, but don't want to jinx it, so I'm not going to say. <laughs> um, and then, so my novel's out with a bunch of agents. I've gotten really, really good feedback on it. I've gotten really good feedback on all my writing from writers who I love and respect. And like, it just, I think I just write quite strangely. So it's um, someone's just gonna have to take a leap of faith with me. Uh, and I hope that will happen soon. I'm also planning to n- next year, write another novel that I have planned. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to, I've got a whole schedule balancing. The really good thing is I remember when Will Self and I were hanging out in New York last year. He was like, how do you not get influenced by the authors you translate? Mm -hmm. And I think the good thing is for me, my whole career of writing and translating, I've been doing both. Yeah. So I'm used to having this very, 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 very impenetrable wall between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I'm much more inclined to be uh, influenced by the people I read. The, the the things that I translate because the things that I translate it's like a, it's like a vacuum sealed bag or something where it's like okay that's in there can't get get out so I have a kind of work schedule plan for that then I think um yeah that that sort of takes me out well into 2025 probably because I think I'm gonna be I've got well I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty it's boring it's like mm-hmm. talking about uh And then I wake up in the morning and I have a protein shake and I do calisthenics. (laughs) No one wants to hear it, but uh, no, I have, I have a plan for another novel and I'm going to keep writing short stories. Um, I think I've learned a lot from writing. I'll have written like 36 short stories um, in the last few years by the end of this year. And uh, that was, I learned a lot from that. So for me, it's just like uh, in all things, I think you just got to keep your head down do the work and hope that the light of um, attention or. Yeah. Renowned shows on you at a certain at a certain moment, and I think um I feel that with all my projects with my longer translations, you know it took a long time with Sorokin too. That didn't happen overnight, mm. and he's a much more saleable author than like Lentz or Moresco or yeah maybe not Atay Atay. There's a I don't want to go into that, but there's a whole specific situation that has caused <laughs> that delay. Um, and it's not the quality of the books or how famous he is in Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: um yeah awesome before i let you go do you want to tell us if there's some books that you are currently reading that you recommend us go out and buy
1: yeah so there are a lot of books that I've. well i mean i'm trying to think what i can the issue is i and this makes me sound like an ass. i'm like trying to think what ones i can recommend to ang- <laughs> anglophones <laughs> but um well I, i'm working on a piece about canal's Gull for. um a big magazine in the U S so I just read uh, out of the world and um, well, I, I kind of reread out of the world. I read it before and um, wolves from the forest of eternity. I read those in German. And um, so that I would, re- well, so that's going to be a complicated one to talk about because I think the last time I was on here, I talked about how much I loved the morning star. Right?
2: Yeah, hmm.
1: I really loved the morning star because it was like, Can all, how are you going to move forward from being this sort of, autofiction fiction guy and he wrote a straight up fucking stephen king novel which yeah. was awesome it was mm-hmm. so cool and so unexpected because there was no wink it was really well structured it was i mean it wasn't really scary but it was like it was the idea of scary like uh, it felt like a horror movie from the 70s you know it had that creepy thing and uh this new book is not quite like that so it's the new Hamsun novel is a very, very, very long book. It's more than a thousand pages. It tells the story about a Norwegian teenager who is just home with his brother and his mom, no supernatural elements. And uh, then it turns out that he's got family in Russia. So we get uh, some, we get a story of his family in Russia and then I don't want to spoil it, but it's just kind of, um, yeah, a bit of a folly, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know how it happened, but um, yeah. I it's um maybe people will disagree, but I think the reception was pretty roundly uh, mixed in German. Mm. I'm gonna kind of write about what I think is going on with Cannibal Skull in general. I love the new Brett Snell's book. Um, it was super nostalgic. I mean, I think it was clearly Brett embracing big narratives in a way that he hasn't before because yeah. all of his other books, they they have this sort of formal experimentation that makes them not compulsive. They're compulsively readable on the level of style, but not in the level of plot. And this book is just, you read it and it's incredible, um, incredibly fun, a bit silly at times, but I really, I really liked it a lot, especially living in LA. It was, I have the sound, someone made a playlist of all the songs that show up in the book and I have yeah. that, uh, playing when I drive around sometimes um then I don't know I mean so much of the stuff that I read these days is just highly specific um I read I've been I mean I've been reading a lot of Paulo because I want to be able to consult to the best of my abilities Mm -hmm. um like Butes is not short uh I read all of Lentz's stuff. So I've been reading, you know, Lentz has stuff I've been shot and follow that I kind of was interested in getting a handle on. I've been, oh no, I could, I've could. i been Well, again though. I've been reading this guy, Hakan Gundai, who's a highly transgressive uh, Turkish writer who I'm kind of interested in translating a little bit. Some of his books have been translated into English. Uh, More and few, I think they're called. Okay. Um, but his first novel is really, really, really nasty quite shockingly nasty so of course i'm interested um i read the new salines that were uh, yeah you know and they're not they're kind of oversold a bit i mean Mm -hmm. they're not they're drafts very clearly and they're not written in style with that said any saline fan should read them Mm -hmm. but they're not like they're not the place to start for sure i would say um i'm trying to think i think Oh, I, of course. I mean, I guess we're talking about the last little while. So um, I love the two, and this is a controversial one, so it's good. I love the Cormac McCarthy twofer, yeah. uh, The Passenger and Stella I really think that anyone who doesn't like them, for me, it's like a good barometer of someone's taste where I go, <laughs> huh, that's a bad sign that you don't like those two books. Yeah. Because I think there's this weird tendency where people are so excited to like um, knock someone off their pedestal, mm. and especially when they do something a little bit left field, uh, yeah. and I think it's a very strange. I think it's just really one book, so let's just call it a book. I think it's a very mm. strange book. There's J- James Love, uh, James Elroy, H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. You know, uh, not to mention the the math stuff. Not to mention the pension influence and the mm. the scenes with the kid. Um, and people are eager to be like, oh well. That's strange, but it's yeah. it's like actually it's pretty insane that a guy who's legitimately elderly is writing his most experimental novel and make taking so many huge chances. A much more typical late career um stretch would be like Philip Roth, whose last books there's really nothing sure, to then, them.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just like retreads, like very dry retreads mm-hmm. of his most famous stuff. So to have someone do something that's such and not to mention the fact that he's a guy who, you know, I hope he lives for another 10 years, but, um, you know, being that old, I think he's past 90, right? Or is he 89?
0: I think he's 89, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, 89. But you're kind of, you know, looking, you're looking, you, you're you facing down death in a certain kind of way at that age. and mm-hmm. and And maybe that's not axiomatically true, but in the way that he writes, he certainly is, you know? Um, and I think it's it's very cool to have a document of a writer who's one of the best writers in English, one, writing his most experimental novel, two, writing a novel about mortality when he's facing down his own mortality very, very starkly. And three, to have an American novelist who just deals with so much of American stuff in a new way, like mm-hmm. um, putting the JFK assassination alongside a sort of Lovecraftian fugitive narrative. Mm-hmm. How can you not like that? Yeah. So... I don't know. I think um, someone's very vocally critical of that book. I think I don't trust them. I think You can there's... be befuddled by it or say it's not my favorite thing in the world, but if you're vocally very, very, very critical of it in a nasty way, I'm like, mm. I don't want to listen to your opinions anymore, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, for me, I loved that it was such a departure from his other work in such a great way because I found that I was just totally surprised by it and, it's. It doesn't seem like any of his other work, and yet it still is like it's just yes. um something completely different. I love the fact that he's able to do something like that at, at his age and and still write a, a kind of really youthful, but yeah, yeah, filled with mortality. So
1: no, exactly. That's exactly. You put it. You you put your finger on it. It's a it's a it's a young man's book and how mm-hmm. it's written, because like not I'm not being ageist, but it's usually uh you know when people are younger they're kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and then Mm -hmm. they slip it in their style and kind of develop it this is a book where he's throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks but it's written with the wisdom and the sort of um, proximity to morality of a much older man so i think Mm -hmm. that's what makes it a really special book and um yeah oh the one other thing i'm reading is with one of my english professors from columbia i'm reading um Wyndham Lewis, we're kind of reading everything by Wyndham Lewis. Okay. Because he's such an important writer, but no one reads him anymore.
0: Well, did he get canceled, like, I guess, like with some of his work?
1: I mean, I'm sure he, like many of the modernists, he doesn't exactly have the best (laughs) beliefs. He has like one book that's pro Hitler, then one book that he wrote later that's anti Hitler. Yeah. So, yes, he's um, not, not, not a good guy politically. But he's very important in terms mm. of the history of modernism and, and really the history of 20th century uh, uh, Anglophone literature because he was so close with all the modernists. Um, they were all writing about each other. See, I mean, The Apes of God, right? Mm. That's a book we all kind of know the name of, but none of us have really read. Yeah. T.S. Eliot wrote more effusively about it than he wrote about Ulysses. Wow. I th- you know, like these books were huge for these writers. And then for us, they're just like, Wyndham Lewis.
2: Mm. (laughs) Um,
1: So, I mean, if nothing else, it's cool to see it from the perspective of understanding literary history. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't rush out and go get them, though. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, he's a great stylist, but I don't think, I think there's a reason he's been somewhat forgotten, it seems to me.
0: Okay. Fascinating. All right. Well, I should probably let you go and um, enjoy the rest of your day in LA Ooh. before we go do you want to let us know where we can reach out and get in touch with you online
1: yeah yeah uh, I think on Twitter and Instagram I'm just checking this I think it's just the same for both Max Daniel Lawton L-A-W-T-O-N no caps no spaces no numbers no nothing just my full name and there you have it actually it's funny <laughs> I'll leave everyone with this parting story that um, those of you with more proximity to the British Isles will better understand which is that, so when I went to Oxford, um, you have to, when you have a visa, you have to do all this impo- like official documentation stuff. So as a function of which my first and last name, my first and middle name went into the Oxford system as if it was a hyphenated name. Yeah. So at my, at, at every dinner, when my name card was there, it would say Max hyphen Daniel Lawton. <laughs> and of course that's like a very sort of, uh, affected posh thing people make fun of a lot so people would always be like why do you have two names like that aren't you american hmm. it was <laughs> like i was it's about trying to imitate posh people by being like oh yes i'm max daniel <laughs> cool well uh thank you again for having me and Very um nice. I'll, i'm sure we'll be in touch
0: yeah awesome thank you so much Thanks once again to Max Lawton. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond zero pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.